welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Hello! With us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, via the magic of the internet, is Lee Younger. Yes, yes, I'm here. We have a great show for you today. We have some of your fantastic questions. But first, we must start with a, oh my God, what is this emergency? <laughs> To be clear, before we even get into the subject, if you've provoked that kind of response out of Matt King after the last, yeah. oh, I just want to say five <laughs> or six years of existence on this planet, you you should think about what you've done. <laughs> yeah. We, we started this I'm show taking over 10 years ago. We've been doing the emergencies almost the entire run of the show. And, you know, they started off with like, ha ha ha, Joel Osteen, very bright teeth. Isn't that fun? And uh, this is this is this is the dark side of of say that here because, um, yeah, I came across a phrase in the wider world um, that I just could not get out of my brain. I shared it with these gentlemen. So we're getting ready to record, and I believe, and we really really don't like to share the pre-recording banter in any way on the show. But I think there was an instructive part where I'm pitching this idea as an emergency and Jed replied, well, I don't know if we can make that funny. Cause at some point it just devolves <laughs> into angry ranting. Yeah. Yeah. So in the rich tapestry yeah. of this podcast, there are many different types of emergencies, both in subject, but also some different types in execution. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes there's like, Hey, what if a Christian movie was good? And sometimes there's, Hey, here's a weird thing that happened this week. And sometimes there's, uh, just a catharsis might be the way. Oh, that's well expressed. To put it. So, you know, we'll see where we land. But in this article about two people who are uh, Silicon Valley weirdos, and I, that is the nicest way I can think to describe them. That's mm-hmm. charitable. Yeah. So there's a whole shtick about these people. Um, they think that because birth rates are declining in, and here the, the quotes around this phrase as it's used, the West. Um, oh. They think because they made a bunch of money in like a venture capital or software or whatever, um, they should uh, be in charge of repopulating the earth so that it is uh, g- all the good genes come through. So they want to have, uh, here's a quote, before marrying, they committed to having between seven and 13 children. Mm-hmm. So of all the crazy things in yeah. that one, two, three, four, five, six, about 11 word sentence, uh, seven and 13 children is not the craziest. The craziest is before marrying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, both Lee and Jed have done a fair amount of premarital counseling with people, postmarital counseling, mid marital counseling. Sure. Um, you should talk about whether or not you want to have children. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Committing to a number is interesting and strange. <laughs> And seven and 13 is cuckoo pants. <laughs> like if you have that many kids, you know, it happens. If people, large families, if you can support them and you, you have the, the time and energy, I think it's wonderful to, before you even get married, be like, I mean, seven at a minimum, right? That is, that is out there. But w- what we're talking here too is a, a motivating factor. It's not that they were just saying like, we like a big family because we, we love, you know, we want to have, great uh, Thanksgiving day football games in the front yard. You know, this was not the thing. This was a very specific motivating factor of, we are going to save the world 
by putting the good genes back into circulation. You know, I feel like I'm not a historian, but I, I feel like I've I've heard some of these themes before. Huh. Like doesn't seem entirely new, but I just can't place where I've heard these ideas before. Yes, there mm. have been a number of attempts at worldviews and certain kind of programs based on uh, who had, and I quote, the good genes. Hmm. Yeah, that G-E-N was definitely part of a word that seems to be knocking on the back of my brain somewhere. Mm, what is that word? I yes, well, I believe it's, I find the quote in this uh, article where we're reading from MercatorNet.com, which I don't know what that is, but it says their critics describe it as eugenics. Ah, and that's, that's the word. Just kind of the end of the paragraph. <laughs> like they don't even bother to do, of course, others would argue, blah, blah, blah. Just nope, some describe it this way. Think about it. Here's the, here's the exact <laughs> quote. Um, on a family level, their proposals involve tinkering with embryos to ensure that their children have good genes. Their critics call it eugenics. They prefer to call it common sense. Here's what I'll say. Everyone who's ever advocated eugenics in the history of the world would have referred to it as common sense. 100%. That doesn't make it not insane. Yep. Yep. Now, you may be wondering, dear listener, um, other than it just being crazy, why are we bringing this up on our uh, nominally Christian podcast? And that's because... We haven't got to the crazy part yet. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> we Buckle haven't gotten up. to the craziest part yet. Yes, uh, you know that's true. Um, we're in the Marianas Trench. We haven't gotten to. We've, we're in the deep part, but not the deepest part. So uh, these are again people who are uh, uh, secular. They are not uh, in doing this uh, large family thing from any kind of religious standpoint. Well, organized religious standpoint, anyway. But they do describe their own worldview. Of course, these two people are not conventionally religious. If pressed, they describe themselves as, and I quote, secular Calvinists. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. nope <laughs> we don't nope, need that. Nope. They are not Sunday churchgoers, nope. but they are a hardworking, hard-driving, abstemious, frugal souls on a mission from evolution. <laughs> Wow. Now, there's a bunch of banana pants parts of that sentence, but I don't appreciate what might be a bad attempt at a Blues, Brother, Blues Brothers reference in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's terrible. Um, secular Calvinism uh-huh. is one of the most insane things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> to look at Calvinism with all its rigidity and self-denial and mm, judgmentalness kind of baked into the idea of an elect and a, a damned and to look at that and say, well, that part's great, but there's some of this love and forgiveness and uh, community and a loving God. Now that part I don't care for, <laughs> but the part where some people are just predestined to be great and be in the inner circle and other people are just chaff. Now that I like. You speak my language now. I wonder what their version of the tulip acronym would be. <laughs> oh. the, self, the secular Calvinist. Oh, wow. That's good. That's very good. 
Well, they do describe themselves as transhumanists. Okay. So do I have transhumanism, utopianism, maybe? Yes. Uh, yeah, Let's then, see. It may just all be slurs from there. Oh, they somebody <laughs> calls it a pragmatist guide. So maybe there's pragma, pragmatism for the P. Okay. Well, the I is definitely insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> and the L is loser. So I think we nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there it is. There it is. <laughs> I was thinking lame, but yes. Yes. That totally e- either way. Yeah. Uh, wow. So they're nearly finished writing another book, which sketches their philosophy and the intertwined themes of demography, evolution, family structure, and religion, called The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. And I've heard the title of a lot of books I don't want to read. That one's way up there. Yeah. <laughs> At its core, they write, this book is a meditation on how we can intentionally construct a cultural religion that will be evolutionarily successful and spread. What kind of an arrogance? I mean, <laughs> like, when you look in the mirror and think, yeah, I'm the guy to craft a religion. I'm just going to go for it. Well, what I love about that is, again, it takes me back to the, the Calvinism thing, which is insane. But Calvinism, which, you know, people are Calvinists, that's fine if it works for you. I've never actually met anyone it works for, but maybe you're the first. That's cool. Seems to not make many people who subscribe to it super hard all that happy or, um, you know, pleasant. But, hey, you know, different structure, different folks. But at least the thing that Calvinists, Calvinism and its expression and its application, as far as I've seen, that the people really like a lot of is the control. I control my own behavior. I want to try to control other people's behavior. But there's that kind of one part of the, the elect and the predestination that is inherently outside of your control if you are going to subscribe to the Christian ideals of Calvinism. So what they've done seems to be like, what if we did this, but I get to decide who's in the elect. Mm. That seems like a much better, a much, much better uh, idea. Cause I went to a good school cause I grew up rich. Therefore I should probably choose the future of humanity. I want I was Calvinism where I get to be God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I was born on third base. I should probably get to do genetic tinkering. Literal genetic tinkering. Yeah. Um, also, and, you know, never let their, uh, these people are certainly the weirdest people in all this, but also, uh, while I'm kicking people while they're down, hey, Calvinists, great job branding your thing so that literal eugenicists were like, hey, <laughs> this seems like something in here I can really vibe with. And yeah. See I'm picking up what you're putting down. This seems totally devoid of any humanity or love or mystery or wonderment or connection to something larger than yourself. I can dig on that type of Christianity a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like one thing in life that I think is really important as like an actual serious thought is we all need friends in our lives where at a certain point they'll be like, bro, no. We're like, I got this idea and I'm going to do this and that and be like this. And like you have people who love us to be like, no, man, no, that, 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 that ain't it. That's, that's not it. And I think one of the, there's a lot of awful stuff going on here, but like one of the real tragedies is that no one, these people don't have anyone in their lives that loves them enough to just look them in the eye and be like, no, man, that no. Yeah. No. Cause like, it, here's the thing is this wasn't the first really insane bad idea they had. Like they went through a lot 
to get to this point and had people kind of be like, oh, that sounds smart the whole time. And I, I can't be clear enough. They need, you need, I need, we all need people in our lives that know us and love us enough to be like, nah, no, nah, that's, that ain't it, man. That's I mean, right. Like, I, I, I get what you're thinking, but that's, that's not it. Cause like, otherwise you wind up advocating secular Calvinism eugenics. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that this is in any way part of these people's uh, thing, but uh, your, your three intrepid say that podcast hosts have known a lot of people in their time who have done a lot of a very certain type of drug that gives you a lot of energy. Yeah. And we've heard them talk about the new and amazing systems they have figured out and the strings behind the wheels of reality and society, which they have deduced and are now ready to move on. And it is the act of love to say, huh, why don't we talk about this again tomorrow when you've come down a little bit? It is not an act of love to say, well, we should write this down now so we don't forget. <laughs> yeah. You could, and I, we put this out, we say this about the church a lot, and I feel like it's you know maybe a bit of a good turnabout to say it about uh, kind of the wider secular business kind of hustle world. You could try just for once being normal and maybe helping <laughs> someone. Like there's plenty of very uh, talented, smart uh, people in places like the inner city or in rural areas who are under-resourced and could maybe do really cool stuff for the future of humanity if that's what you care about. Uh, and they're already born. You don't have to do a, a weird thing where your whole plan rests on your 10 kids having 10 kids. It's like, there's already a bunch of people. You can just invest in them. (laughs) Oh, man, that is. Wow. Yeah. And I will say this as we we close this out. There's a couple of very odd things going on here. Uh, One is they describe uh, part of their idea for uh, raising birth rates in certain cultures as their project arc. Mm. And also they mention um, uh, Elon Musk in this uh, article as someone who is a part of this pronatalism movement. And they mentioned some lar- some uh, statements he made about like um, non-reproductive sex being kind of a waste. And it's a weird thing to watch people go so far into Reddit atheists, like new atheist wormhole that they come around not only essentially religious but like 16th century christian (laughs) yeah like you really really chase the atheism too hard when you landed on reformation era (laughs) worldviews and and just just in case there's any dear sensitive listener out there who thinks fellas you guys you don't know these folks maybe they're really nice and they're being, you know, misconstrued by the the writer of this article. I just want to put this in as exhibit A, B, and C. The current children they have in their race to 13 are called Octavian Torsten, which means Thor's stone, and Titan Invictus. Um, yeah. They're exactly who you think they are. <laughs> 
Good times. Yes, I will leave you with this part. They are also a married couple. They've operated companies on five continents, collectively pulled in $70 million every year, raised a private equity fund, directed strategy, and served as managing director of Dialogue, an elite retreat for global leaders founded by Peter Thiel. Yep. Peter Thiel, who uh, started a surveillance technology company literally named after the evil seeing stones in Lord of the Rings and uh, <laughs> backed a couple of insane uh, Senate candidates in the last thing. Uh, yeah, I look, I don't want to cast aspersions. I can't see into anyone's heart, but I can say with a pretty strong certainty, if you named one of your children Titan Invictus, you are racist. (laughs) (laughs) If you're white people from San Francisco who named your child one after Octavian, one after Thor and one Titan Invictus. And you're yeah. real concerned about birth rates. Yikes. Yeah, yikes indeed. Secular Calvinism, a thing you didn't know existed, but now you do. You're welcome, listener. <laughs> <laughs> if we can't forget about it, neither can you. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. the ethos of this show uh, has gone a little bit more, uh, maybe evolved over the years from. Well, we think we we have we have can be a safe space and help people to just kind of you're in here with us now. <laughs> and with that, we will declare emergency off. Move on to our first question. If you have us all the way to the end, I'll give some ways you can get in touch with us, or you can click the links in your episode description. <clears throat> our first question comes in and says, I don't know how I feel about Christmas. Growing up, it was my favorite time time of the year and hasn't really gotten any better. I see that there could be a lot of positive stuff about the holiday but I can't seem to connect to it. Is there a way to reset my Christmas feelings? And uh, Jed, that may be a bit of a, a abrupt gear shift from secular humanism to uh, Christmas time feelings, but such is the structure of this so, show. Yeah. So where do we start off? Well, I appreciate the question. I totally get that. To be honest with you, man, I, I like Christmas more now than I used to, but that's for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. Uh, for a long time, I didn't really like Christmas. I had I had some pretty crappy Christmases growing up for a lot of reasons. Family had a lot of issues, still does. Um, and um, it, I've had a lot of really sad, messed up, disappointing, hurtful, somewhat traumatizing Christmases. So I I I don't know if that's been your experience, but it has been mine. But let's start by taking the pressure off. You don't have to like Christmas. Yep. You are under zero obligation to like Christmas. Let's list other things that as a Christian, you don't have to like. You don't have to like Christmas or Easter or church or devotionals or hymns or praise songs or potluck dinners or Bible studies or any of the rest of it. Christianity, I was actually weird. I was thinking about this in the last few days. Like, if we can kind of turn off all the nonsense for a second, here, here's kind of the core idea to me of Christianity is there's a God that knows that you got some issues and loves you anyway. What a cool, amazing thing that is. Mm-hmm. I want to repeat that. There's a God that knows you've got a lot of issues and he loves you anyway. I don't think that that's offered by many other faith systems. Certainly not any that I'm aware of. Um, it's pretty cool to be known and to be loved. And that's that's kind of the core thing that Christianity, at least in, in my view, that, that that offers. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Liking hot cocoa has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Liking Easter eggs 
has nothing to do with that. Like, if you like hot cocoa and Easter eggs, that's cool. I don't think I would mix them. I don't think they'd go very well together. But, like, you you, you like whatever you like. But but the idea of grace, the idea of, of a God that, that sees you and knows you and knows, you know, how it goes down, but loves you anyway and accepts you anyway and is, you know, made it where we're cool now. Like, that's really, really beautiful. The rest is just kind of aesthetic stuff that some people are into and some people aren't into. And so you really don't have to be under any pressure here. Um, it's fine for, for other people. Let's put some quick left and right limits. It's fine for other people to really like Christmas or other holidays. That's cool. You don't want to needlessly harsh their buzz. But it's also not cool for them to make you feel bad for not being into what they're into. So you can be into what you're into. They can be into what they're into. That's cool. Because, again, none of that really has anything to do with, like, the core of what makes Christianity Christianity. That said, whether it's Christmas or Easter or the 4th of July or Labor Day weekend or whatever else, if you want to hit reset, what's worked for me, and I I pass it along for whatever it's worth, is I think you kind of have to create your own traditions and make new memories, Mm. right? Like. I'm not going to get back the Christmases that I had when I was 14 years old and my family was going buck wild like that. that, That's not, that's not going to happen. But like this Christmas will be my first Christmas as a 42 year old and my only Christmas is a 42 year old. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do some fun stuff that I feel good about that I like and that Hallie likes and that we have a good time with. Uh, And we're going to make some new memories and, and we're going to, Talk about what we liked about last year and what we liked about the year before that. And on that basis, what we do and don't want to do this year. And for me, that's worked. Like you you really can build your own traditions. I mean, if if you can dig it, all traditions started somewhere. The fact that you might not know where they started, that, that doesn't mean they've all, they've always existed. They, they very much have not. I mean, like someone was the first person to make hot chocolate. And other people were like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. You know, it's particularly cool when it's kind of cold outside. And the clouds parted and the voice said, we open gifts on Christmas Eve in this family. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. (laughs) Like, Like, you know, I mean, okay. So like, here's, here's one that apparently is, um, like it's kind of a thing in, in the Midwest. I have a lot of friends who do it, but I'd never even heard of it growing up is a fancy tea around Christmas, like, like a high tea with like all the, like the little finger sandwiches and, you know, scones and the clotted cream and all that stuff. Like that's a, a pretty common thing for a lot of folks in Chicago. It's, it's a tradition. Like I had never heard of that as a kid. It doesn't make me silly as a kid. It doesn't make it invalid tradition. That's just, that's just how life works. So you kind of have to create your own traditions. You can find things to try. You can try things to adopt. So for example, like I read recently, I think it's in Iceland that there's this, um, this Christmas Eve tradition of like people exchange books and then they drink hot cocoa and just read the books that they've exchanged for the rest of the evening. Like if you read that, you're like, oh, that sounds cool. You just do it. You just be like, we're going to, um, me, yeah. me and my friends, we're just going to try it and, and, and see how it goes. And so like, maybe you try it and it's super lame. And like 30 minutes later, you're like, okay, it's Xbox time. Cause this was really boring and we picked bad books or maybe it's three hours later. You're like, dude, I didn't know that like octopuses could change color. This is blowing my mind, man. In which case we should do this again next year. This is, this is, I learned stuff. This was cool. Make your own traditions. But again, the key thing, start by taking that pressure off. 
you don't have to like Christmas. You don't have to like Easter. You don't have to like any of the rest of it. This Christianity is about you and God and the fact that God knows you and loves you and accepts you and that we're, we're all good. Start there and then build the traditions that you want. And, dear listener, if Jed is on your shopping list, he just dropped a big hint about wanting some octopus-themed books. <laughs> take note for this grand holiday season i think that's all great stuff and a fantastic place to start off and lee what would you what would we have to add to that it was great i mean i underline and and love every piece of that i i i had a thought when i was thinking about this and you know if if you are a person who says i really do want to reset i do want to connect with this um you know a bunch of people in my life are really into it what do i do um and and I think uh, one part that's worth revisiting in what in what Jed shared is just kind of in sharing some of his own story, just saying like, hey, part of the reason I wasn't into this was because of some difficulty I had with my own uh, family situation and stuff. And and if that's part of your story, too, we're really sorry. If you had some really crappy situations, um, some really uncool stuff with some family members or or church things or whatever that is, we're really sorry for that stuff. Um, something that I would suggest, I, I would start by talking about something that has nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever, which is for me recently, I've become interested in the world cup and that's a new factor in my life because I never knew anything about the world cup the entire time that I was growing up. My, my dad was a high school, uh, coach for American football and there were no other sports, no other sports existed. We only watched and talked about and knew about, um, American football. So I didn't know anything about soccer. I didn't know anything about the world scene of soccer. I didn't know about anything about the world cup tournament. I didn't know anything about it. And the last time that we, the last time the world cup happened, um, I was one of those things where I realized like a lot of my friends are talking about this and I have no vocabulary. I have no history. I have nothing. I have no point of engagement in this whatsoever. And so I, what I did was I had a, a pretty close friend who was super into it, who I trusted, and and just said, like, hey, like, onboard me in some of these things. Like, let me ask you a bunch of questions and have me over when you guys watch a game you're super interested in. And just just bring me into the fold, if you don't mind. And he was super great about it, just really gracious about saying, like, yeah, come join us, man. We're going to get some pizzas and we're going to watch this match. And, and, um, and I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that, you know, when we start getting into the weeds and in, in some of the conversations and terminology and jargon, like I'll break some of that down for you on the side. So you don't feel like embarrassed or out outside on any of that. And, and what it became for me was, uh, yet another thing to connect with, with a really good friend. Um, I would suggest a similar thing, like could be done like that with somebody who, um, in your life, who you trust, who really loves Christmassy stuff, um, really has like a favorite Christmas movie or, um, you know, a playlist that they love to play or some tradition with where they have a party with, you know, ugly sweaters or I don't know what the things are, but um, somebody that you really trust who just really innocently is into it. Um, ask them to engage you in some of those things that that that's worked for me in the World Cup. Maybe it's something that could help you kind of reset some of this stuff. With Christmas. The other thing that I would suggest is if there is a connection point or in your in your life as a person who believes in Jesus with certain things like righting wrongs in the world or flipping the tables on 
certain things, you know, about oppression and poverty and, and some of those things. One of the things that I would really love to impress upon you is that when you just read the biblical accounts of not only the first Christmas, but some of the promises surrounding that first Christmas before it happened, and then as as you know the the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, some of the things that the the way that the New Testament opens, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, um, one of the things that you would find is there is a whole lot about the Christmas story that has to do with the disruption of in, unjust power structures and the caring for and meeting the needs of the marginalized and the oppressed, uh, amplifying the voices of, of people who are down and out, outcast and, and overlooked. And there is a whole lot that you could do to engage some of those populations at this time of year. Uh, people are aware, people are paying attention and different, you know, charitable organizations are doing lots of cool things. I'm sure in basically whatever city you're in and, you know, we'd be happy to help you kind of look up some points of engagement. I say that to tell you that there's a whole lot to the Christmas story that has to do with our life and our faith that doesn't have anything to do with the, um, with, you know, the, the, the playlists and the sweaters and the, the presents and the decorations or anything like that. Um, when the young teenage girl who became, um, who said yes to the plan and became the mother of Jesus broke into a song about um, the elevation of the poor and the, and the total destruction of unjust power structures and the rich and the wealthy and, and the poor getting all of their stuff. That's what her song was about. Um, there's a lot of really, really cool. If, the, if that's the kind of stuff that floats your boat in your relationship with, with Jesus as a follower of Jesus, there's a whole lot of cool points of engagement in the actual Christmas story for some of the stuff that that maybe you're into and that maybe you care about that maybe uh, lights up your world a little bit. And it would be cool to engage some of those things at this time of, uh, to, to quote a, a famous Christmas story, at this time of the rolling year and to figure out how you could get involved in some of those things. And it might be the the, the point of engagement that really resets the whole Christmas experience for you. All great stuff from both of these guys. I would I would add on the end here. Uh, it's also okay to like the superficial stuff about Christmas. Yeah, like that's mm-hmm. a perfectly legitimate in. Um, one of the things I think people maybe and again speaking from a certain amount of experience here, as we all have, who have some maybe some complicated past of Christmas or didn't love it, is there's this idea of it should fill you with childlike awe and you know deep <clears throat> wonderment at all times. It's okay to think the music is fun and the lights look nice and decorate your house in a way you want to. Like that's a perfectly legitimate and sometimes useful way into enjoying this time of year for yourself. You know, if you like if you like the cookies and you think the, you know, hanging a wreath on the front door looks good, then that's perfectly legitimate too. It doesn't have to be this uh awe and not every and again, we're, we are a nominally Christian podcast and we definitely are all Christian and think that the Christmas story is powerful and a wonderful time of year. And I hold it very dear, but everything about Christmas doesn't have to make you reflect on the sacrifice of the baby Jesus. Uh, you can just like the movie or the song or whatever. I like cookies. Yeah. Cookies are great. Yeah. Uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. Super good. Jesus isn't in that one. It's still a really fun movie and that's fine. 
Um, part of, and this goes back to what Jeff was talking about with creating your own traditions. Part of, for me, as I got older and kind of did some Christmas stuff myself, was realizing that none of this stuff is necessarily magic or inherent. A lot of stuff around Christmas is just because Christmas is the time of year people decide to do this stuff. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. There's actually nothing magical about a charity that's done around Christmas, but if that's the time of year, because it's getting to the end of the tax year, that's when people are asking that you, you know, donate a little bit or volunteer or check out an Amazon wish list for a shelter near you or whatever it is. That's great. It doesn't have to give you deep Christmas feelings. It can just be, this is when people are asking. So this is when I'm doing it. Or uh, I see this family this time of year. Cause it's convenient that people have time off work. It doesn't have to start out magical. You can start off really ruthlessly practical in some ways and just do what you like. And as you develop some good experiences and good feelings over that, uh, that will develop into those traditions, into some of those holiday things. And it's a, it can be a useful way into, as you put it, a reset. We move on to our next question here. It says, how do you support and love someone who's going through a hard time, but is clearly not ready to make any big changes? I love them and they aren't like being hostile to me, but they aren't done with whatever phase they're in yet. And another really, really good question. And one that in both professional and personal, personal capacities, your old friends on the say that podcast have a certain amount of experience with and Jed, where would we start off? Yeah, we do. Man, that's a great question. I'm glad that you wrote in and I'm going to give you probably not the most fun answer, which is it totally depends. There, there's not like boo, a, I boo nuance. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I hate nuance. In fact, Christmas nuance is the worst of all the things that I hate. Um, <laughs> Christmas nuance <laughs> is a very unpopular Hallmark movie. <laughs> they met at a Christmas tree farm, but their lifestyles were actually not that compatible. So they just stayed friends. <laughs> Christmas nuance. Christmas nuance. The, the favorite tradition of the secular Calvinist. <laughs> There it is. There it is. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's not one answer to this. And, and I think you're asking how do you support them? I think it depends a lot on the nature of your relationship, and it depends on what they're going through and what kind of changes they might, you know, benefit from. But I would offer a couple of big picture thoughts. The first is, in general, often you can love and support a friend just by continuing to be a friend. Um, like you, you don't have to, you don't have to turn your interactions into like an advertisement for the changes that you think they should make <laughs> like that. That's in general, not a, not a good idea. You know what I mean? Um, you know, uh, ah, it's, it's Friday night. What are we going to do? Well, I thought maybe, you know, we could, uh, you know, grab a pizza maybe play some Xbox, maybe talk about you going back to college. And after that, play some more Xbox. Like you don't, you don't have to do that. You know, oh, what did I, um, what did I do this weekend? Uh, you know, watch the game, went for a walk with the kids, didn't do any heroin. What about you? <laughs> I really liked, I really liked my weekend. How was yours? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> You don't have to do that. And like w one thing that's, that's worth looking at, and this is actually, I think important both for humility sake and for kind of knowing where the other person is coming from in it, like emotion, like what they're doing with this, like, dude, there's probably changes you should make too. Like, mm. I don't think I know anybody in life that couldn't benefit from some kind of change in some kind of arena of their life. Like, most of us would probably be better off if we changed a few things. A lot of us have a sense of what some of those arenas would be too. 
And uh, for most of us, we're not we're not quite ready yet. Like I'm definitely aware. He, actually, here's the thing for me is I'm I'm aware there's a bunch of stuff I'd be better off if I changed. I'm trying to at least prioritize some of it. So that's that's something. But like, and I don't mean this unkindly. I I think you, you know when I think about the listeners to the Say That podcast, I think they're people of impeccable taste. And refinement mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, really, really good looking. So that's that's the kind of listeners that we have. But like not as an insult, but as, as a for real thing. Like, I mean, if you think about your life, there's probably changes that you would benefit from making, too, that you're not exactly ready to to make yet for all kinds of reasons. And maybe don't want people um, harassing you about and, and haranguing you about because that's that's no fun. So what do we do with all that? So. The first is to recognize that for a lot of folks, man, um, people aren't ready until suddenly they are like, at least in my experience, some of which is somewhat professional. I don't think that there is a linear progression of readiness for change in a lot of people that I have been around. It's not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready. Now I'm ready Um, for for reasons that are pretty hard to predict. Um, Matt and I both have a friend who spent a lot of time in really hardcore addiction who is fond of saying, man, there's no rock bottom. There's just when you're tired and people pick really unpredictable times to decide that they are tired of whatever the thing is and that therefore they're, they're ready to, to make some kind of change. One of the things too, that has to be acknowledged is for a lot of us, I know it's true for me. Sometimes we need to just warm up to new ideas and that takes time. Like, could I, in my life, could I survive entirely without a car and only walking or riding a bicycle everywhere I go? I actually could, I could do that. But like, I would, I would need to just kind of meditate on that possibility before I jumped into it. Like if you, if you asked me to make a yes or no decision tomorrow about no longer having a car, I would definitely say no if you let me kind of think about it and warm up to it for a few months, there's a chance that I might say yes, because there's all kinds of big changes where we kind of have to, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure I have a better phrase than warm up to them. We've kind of got to let our brain get used to the concept that, that, you know, things could be that level of different and it might be okay. And maybe we could pull it off if there was, you know, the right kind of, of reason for it. And then the last thing is, there's a difference between recognizing that they need to make a change and knowing how to make that change. Mm. Right. Like suppose that you had a friend who had never learned to read. Um, and you might rightly say, dude, your life would be so, so much better if you could read and write, like it would like, it would make everything about your life better. And you'd be right. It would. Does your friend know where to start? Are, are they aware of adult literacy classes? Do they know where to find them? Cause like, People, many of us are aware of like, if X would magically be better, different in my life, that would be great without having any idea of how to, to change X. So the thing about continuing to just be a friend of them means that when they're ready, you know, when they say, I've been thinking about it and I'm, I'm feeling like my, the fact that I can't read rights kind of holding me back. I'm not really sure what to do about that though. That's a great moment where part of being a friend is like, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. They have an adult literacy class over at the rec center and we can, we go and check it out. You can see what you think. But again, all that boils down to, there's not one right answer on this stuff, but you can yeah. continue to be a friend. You, you can continue to cheer them on and also recognize that patience and humility go a really, really long way in being a support to other people. 
A great point. Fantastic place to start off. And Lee, where do we take it from there? I don't have a ton to add on this. Um, j- just a couple of anecdotes. I really, really loved all the places that Jed took us on that. I, I think um, that my anecdotes both point to uh, an idea, which is that um, as much as it seems like you're coming from a place of wanting to help someone who needs to make changes, I I, I think that's really, really cool. But I want to suggest something uh not as the devil's advocate, but just kind of bring in um, this idea, which is that there is freedom in not being the guy. There's freedom in not being the guy whose job it is to fix everybody's stuff and to hold everybody accountable and everything. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, just a couple of anecdotes. One is um, we, Christy and I have three children. Two of them are of the legal age to operate motor vehicles. And when they started, you know, reading the book to get the, you know, the, the learner's permit so they could start learning how to drive the car and all that kind of stuff, Christy made it very, very clear to me, you're teaching the kids how to drive the car. Um, I, I do not want to be in the car while they're learning how to operate the motor vehicle. My nerves couldn't handle it. You, that's, that's your job, dad. That's, that's going to be on you. Now that was great because I was like, sure, I, I'm I'm ready for that. I'm I'm ready to have those conversations with the with our daughters and to walk through, you know, take them to an empty parking lot and here's how you here's how you operate the stick shift and here's how you park a car and all those kinds of things. But for Christy, it was this freedom of like, hey, I I have now been released from that, and there is a freedom in not having to be the guy. I get to just be their mom, and I don't have to be the one that teaches them how to drive. A similar thing for from my perspective was um, most folks that listen to this know that I've I've been involved with um, music in my life in some capacity for many 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 years at this point, and all of our kids have been interested in music, and yet um, I'm not very interested in being the their teachers of music uh, because there's a thing where I want to have the relationship with them where I can encourage them in their music where I can be the fan of the stuff that they do with music, but I'm not the one correcting them all the time. And that is a completely different kind of relationship. So they've, they've had musical instructors, they've had piano teachers, they've had, you know, band directors or orchestra teachers at school and chorus teachers at school and stuff like that. And there is a freedom in a certain relationship space with someone where I don't have to be the one that's making the call all the time in your life. And I do get to be the person who is just a friend and a support. I'm not saying that you're never going to have a situation where you need to make a call or where you need to hold somebody accountable or something like that. But what I do want to suggest is that some of what Jed's talking about, about just being a support to somebody, uh, looking at the humility, taking the humility to understand that I need to make changes too. And so I don't need to speed anybody else into that situation when maybe there's some things about myself I'm, I'm, I don't even know if I'm open to looking at. There is a freedom in just being someone's support, in just being somebody in their life who encourages them and walks alongside them. And maybe when they are in a place where they do want to have a conversation about some changes that need to be made, they will look around in their life and realize, I have someone in my life who's always supported me, who's always cared about me, who's always been there for me. And then you may find yourself in a situation where they have the openness to want to come to you in those things. Again, there's a freedom in not being that guy. There's a freedom in just being in that support and encouragement role. 
I think that's great stuff from both of these guys. Um, one one thing I'll tack on the end here is there are a bunch of genres of this situation we're talking about here of someone who pretty clear they need to make a change isn't there yet. One of the ones I am most familiar with, uh, again, both professionally and personally, is the person who has a plan. Not a good plan. I can tell them it's not going to work. But they're not really interested in any input on the plan. Certainly not interested in any alternative plans. Uh, so these guys talk about biding your time. Um, I think one good way to kind of tell is that other than someone outright asking, which is always, always, always the best situation, is does it seem like a person who's looking for a plan that you yeah. might be able to help them in crafting? Or is this a person who's got a plan, stupid though it may be, that they are definitely going to see through? Because if they're in that case, as as Leah's saying there, there's a certain amount of freedom in saying, well, you've got a plan. Uh, <laughs> good luck. I hope it works out. I don't see any reason that it would work out or any indication that it's going to. But, hey, I hope that's what gets you out of this jam and we don't have to do the uh, the the probably much harder thing that I'm thinking of. So, hey, let's give it a shot. Huzzah! <laughs> a lot of freedom in that. <laughs> you you cannot, and it very rare is the instance in which you can make someone substitute your your judgment for their own um so don't waste any calories trying to do that in most cases is a very uh, smart way to go about it and uh, if they are ready when they get to the point where they've tried all their schemes and all their uh, can't miss ideas to figure something out maybe then they'll be in a position to uh, be open to something and that's what we're waiting for our final question comes in here and says in 1 John 3, 1, it says, The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Does that apply when Christianity has been the biggest world religion for 2,000 years? Uh, I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, kind of ties on with some stuff we were talking about in the last episode about a kind of a persecution complex. I think we see a lot of things get thrown around about like, well, the reason the world rejects rejects us is because it rejected him first. And yeah, there might be other reasons that people are rejecting <laughs> your institution or the things you're doing, but it's, it is definitely a, a thing that comes up again in scripture of uh, Jesus's followers, at least in first century Palestine being treated a certain way because of uh, people, the way they felt towards Jesus. So Jed, where do we uh, look at applying this uh, very specific idea to our uh, life as people who are living in a world where uh, people have heard of Jesus, they actually do know him and yep. that's not really the issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's worth um, it's worth beginning by noting that any time a person is using scripture as a cover for why their crappy behavior is okay, I mean, that's that's right out. Um, you know, yeah. uh, people, and I I feel certain this is not just the Christian scriptures. People have been hiding behind holy texts for a very very long time. Um, I'm, I'm going to do this awful thing, but then I'm going to uh, find a way to, to quote this religious document that makes it where I'm really the hero, even though I've been doing awful stuff. And that's, that's right out, man. I mean, that's just, um, that's not limited to this passage. It's not limited to the new Testament. It's not limited to the Bible. That's, um, that's a really cruddy thing that people have been doing for, for a long time. In fact, even longer than 2000 years. And it's, uh, it, it's a major no-no. Uh, we're going to make no quarter for it, so that's that's right out. According to the tenants of Zoroaster, you can't be boycotting my bakery. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So uh, that that needs to be said. And like, 
I think it's it's worth noting that that there are some behaviors and there are some things where like Dude, I'm not going to argue this point with you. Um, you know, I mean, like I, I, I give you an example, right, of like, you know, when America was in the process of outlawing slavery, um, there were people who were trying to use scripture to argue why slavery was not only good, but a God ordained thing. And in fact, there's one major Christian denomination that was created solely so that they could advance that belief system. Can't remember which one it is, but. I I assume part of their name might be a giveaway. Yeah, like they're about the South, Southern something or other. And when you've got people on on that level of really evil, like that, that's a word I don't use very often these days, but like that is like taking scripture to justify just literally owning other human beings. Like there's no word other than evil. Like that is... Right. That's evil. Wow, Jed, that's really not you hearing out both sides. Yeah. Slavery is evil. (laughs) Somebody's rushing to judgments. Okay. I want to go on record, man. I want to go on record. Slavery, super bad. Really, really wrong. Also, Nazism. Both things that are really bad and really wrong. Full stop. No exceptions. I can't believe it. I really feel like you saying that violates the First Amendment somehow. (laughs) Not really clear on what the First Amendment is, but I'm pretty sure you just did a violation of it. Yeah. So, like, my, my point, and this is really an aside, but, like, dude, when, when people are, are, you know, kind of trying to take Scripture and be like, that means I can have slaves, like, it's, it is not, this is no longer an intellectual argument. Like, you know, trying to say, well, let's look and we'll do an exegesis, like, no, you are wrong. I, I, I This is not. An, an intellectual debate about whether or not scripture supports slavery. I'm not doing that with you. This is wrong. Full stop. So the idea of, of people taking scripture and using it to cover the awful stuff that they do like that, that's right out. We're, we're not doing that. What do we do with this passage? What does it actually mean? That's a great question. I think that there's two ways that we can look at it. One would be to do actual proper exegesis and to kind of work our way through the hermeneutical spiral where we go all the way back as best we can understand it to what did this text mean to the original audience? What was their uh, sociopolitical situation and, and what were what what were they facing in their lives? What their realities? What did it mean to them? And on that basis, what could it mean to us today? And that's worth doing. That's good stuff. For me, I'm just going to give you a very, very simple thing that I think is a takeaway from this passage, and that is God sees you differently than the world at large sees you. Hmm. I, I think I think that's one big takeaway. God has a perspective about you and sees more of you than the world at large sees about you. You may have felt at times in your life like there was more to you in a positive sense than what an outside observer can notice. And that's true. There is. You contain multitudes because God designed you that way. There is more to you than what your third grade teacher, who was kind of a jerk, noticed about you. 100% true, and that's part of what this passage is indicating. And one cool thing that you can do is to help other people discover that they contain multitudes too, that there is more to them than what their teacher in third grade saw or what their family members saw or what the weird church they were raised in saw or what that uh, T-ball league that they didn't do very good at saw, that they contain multitudes too, that they too are fearfully and wonderfully made and made in the image of the Lord. It's true for you. It's true for them. You can help them see it. 
Um, that is that is one takeaway from this passage. You may notice that it doesn't appear to have anything to do with justifying violence against other human beings and why that's really okay because of some sort of weird reading in this text. And it doesn't because that's not what this is talking about. But it does mean and it does imply that God sees you as an absolute work of art, made you a unique and wonderful person, and wants for you to shine brightly in a way that brings beauty into the world and into the universe. Yeah. Fantastically put, and a wonderful place to start that off. Lee, where would we go from there? Yeah, that was fantastic. It was great. And I loved all that stuff. And one of the things that I would add here is just um, when we, you know, you know, we when we look at First John, this letter, this book in the New Testament, and look at what he was doing, what was his aim? Why did he write this? I, I think that there is still so much application that can be gotten out of this, re- despite the fact that Christianity has been a, a very popular religion for a long, long time. And you know, like you said, like well, I think I think we did it, folks. I think people know who Jesus is. So I don't know if this verse applies. Well, actually, what's going on in this verse is super interesting. The the chapter begins, that verse begins by John saying, what manner of love is it that we could be called children of God, and yet that's what we are? And then it goes on to say the part that you've quoted in your, in your question, that when it says what manner of love, it's actually a word that means from what country does this love come from? In other words, the love that God has shown for us what Jed is talking about when he says that, you know, God sees you in a way that nobody else does, that kind of love, that kind of affection, that kind of treatment, like, it's like, it's like a foreign language to us. We don't have love like that here. Um, and that's the kind of love that we've received. And John is crystal clear through so much of this book that our logical response to being loved like that is to love other people. It's crystal clear. And he says, in fact, if you don't love other people, in fact, if you hate other people, you should not claim that you know God, because that is what this whole thing is. This whole thing is about loving people. I tell you all of that to say this. Yes, people know who Christians are. Yes, people have driven by churches. Yes, people have heard someone who claimed to know Jesus say a thing or two about this or that, whatever, whatever, on Twitter or on a TV show or whatever. Until Christians wholesale make this world feel like, wow, that person right there, they love me in a way I've never seen before. It's like a foreign language. We don't have love like that around here. When the Christians are known for loving everybody that way, then we will have shown people who Jesus is. At that point, we will have shown people who Jesus is. That's the point of the book of 1 John. 1 John is saying... We have been loved so ludicrously, and the only logical response is to go out and love the rest of the world exactly like that. And when we show when we show that kind of love, some kind of foreign levels of love and acceptance and kindness and tolerance and sweetness, when we are showing that, then we are showing people the heart of Christ, and that's what this is about. That is beautifully put by both of these guys. All right, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. Uh, Lee points out as an answer there that the great question that people are looking for an answer to is, who is Jesus? We have that in song form as we take you out with another Christmas song. This is Jed's version of What Child Is This? Yeah, that, yeah. Thanks for listening, Dishmer. We love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. What child?